Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. We've come to the last four chapters, and this, this morning, as I mentioned before, we're looking at Genesis 47 of this wonderful book of Genesis that we've been in for a while. Now, it's been a couple of weeks, so I just want to situate us here in Genesis 47, where we are at right now. We've been going through this last part, which is essentially the story of the family of Jacob. And we saw how Jacob had a dysfunctional family. They were divided, the sons of Jacob. Jacob himself was a was a man that had many flaws, yet a man who had put his trust in the Lord. And we saw of how God had graciously planned that this family, if they remained in Canaan at the time, they were in danger of being assimilated into that land. And just whether it's through intermarriage and uh, adopting other practices whereby then God's plan uh, was never to be that way. So in the wisdom of God's plan at at his appointed time, through various things, including the sin of man, God sends Joseph first as a slave to Egypt and then raises him to the right hand of power. And through various other events, God brings Jacob and his family to Egypt. And they come this time not as a divided family, but they have been reconciled through God working through Joseph. And they've come united as a family, reconciled back to God, reconciled with each other. And they're coming to, le- to settle in Egypt as per the call from Joseph and from Pharaoh himself. And we... So at the end of Genesis 46, that Joseph had given specific instructions to his family on what they should say when they see Pharaoh. And he, he specifically told them to mention that they were shepherds, which was the truth. You know, for generations they had been having livestock and caring for those livestock. And he said, you are to say this to Pharaoh because, and he gives this reason, shepherds are detestable as far as the Egyptians are concerned. In other words, Egyptians hated shepherds. Now, maybe because they were, we don't know the exact reason, maybe because they were smelly or less sophisticated than the, you know, the modern advanced society of Egypt. Whatever the, the reason was, this was Joseph's plan. And, and his plan was that so they could be in the land of Goshen. Now the land of Goshen is on the northern border of Egypt, northeastern border of Egypt. And so when you think about it, it's away from the capital of Egypt and where you know, Egyptian civilization is thriving. But the land of Goshen is also in the Nile Delta Valley. So it's a very fertile land and where a lot of pastures grew. 
So you can imagine this, you know, it, it's, it's away from the civilization of Egypt, so to speak. It's an isolated land, but a very fertile land. Uh, a land where they could have all their livestock and they could thrive undisturbed, separated from mainline Egyptian society. It's a way by which God was bringing things to pass where this family would no longer be tempted to be assimilated, would be in danger of being assimilated into the Egyptian society, where they would be left to thrive in this fertile land and ultimately become a great nation. So this morning now we find ourselves in Genesis 47, which is the next scene. And what we see in this chapter is how God's promise to Abraham, those Abrahamic promises are coming to pass. Those Abrahamic blessings are slowly coming to pass, both in the uh, family of Jacob, but that blessing is also then going to those around them, just as God had promised Previously, and God's redemptive plan is moving forward. And there's a sense in which if you, if you read this chapter carefully, there's, there's even a contrast where you have Jacob and his family, a nobody bunch of nomadic shepherds. And then you have Pharaoh and Egypt, most powerful nation, wealthy, you know, the most powerful man that ever lived during that time of history. And yet what you also see is that during this famine, Jesus, uh, Egypt is brought down to its knees, so to speak. And how God will use one of Abraham's seed, Joseph, to bless them and save them. And at the same time, God will use this same seed, Joseph, to bless Jacob and his family, and where Jacob and his family will thrive even during this time. There's a big contrast that's going on here between mighty Egypt that is needing to be saved and little family of Israel that's going to prosper and ultimately become a great nation in Egypt. And there are lessons here, I believe, that we can take for ourselves, just starting with how God deals with his people and his working with his people in this godless world. And there's some things that we can learn from about that this morning. And we can also learn about, ultimately, this, you know, all this blessing and prospering grace that comes in Egypt is through agency of Joseph. And it points to the greater Joseph, the ultimate seed of Abraham, who we should put our hope in, and ultimately not in the worldly systems and powers of this world. So I've titled this morning's sermon as God's provision in Egypt through Joseph. And we'll look at this passage under two headings. Joseph's family before Pharaoh. And then Joseph's administration in Egypt. So all of this prospering and provision that God 
gives to both Jacob and his family as well as uh, Egypt is through Joseph. And there's much we can learn here. So firstly, Joseph's family before Pharaoh. Verse 1. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They're now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds as, your, as our fathers were. And they said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servant's flock, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please, let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. So Joseph now informs Pharaoh that his family have arrived from Canaan and they are in the land of Goshen. And he then presents five of his brothers, you know, five of his brothers representing his family to Pharaoh. You know, these five brothers were probably the most impressive ones, the most maybe the most artic articulate and the most well-mannered brothers. I mean, just, just think about it, right? If you had to take someone with you to make a request before the king, you know, you, you, you wouldn't take someone who's distracted and waffles and ill-mannered. You would take someone who would make a good impression and is able to, rep able to make that request to the king well. And so Joseph selects five of his brothers and they come before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh asks them, you know, what they do for work. You know, he's probably trying to figure out now, how can this family of Joseph now fit into the Egyptian economy? As Joseph had told them, they tell Pharaoh, we are shepherds. And essentially they imply, you know, we pose no threat. You know, we're not seeking any political power or position here. But we've come simply because of the severe famine in Canaan. And they, and they say that they've come simply on a temporary basis. But they have a problem and it is that they don't have any pasture lands for their flocks. And so they ask if they can dwell in Goshen. Remember, Egyptians hate shepherds. They're an abomination as far as Egyptians are concerned. So how is Pharaoh going to respond? Verse 5. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen, and if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. You know, what's amazing is not just that, you know, generally because Egyptians detest shepherds, seeing Pharaoh's response that way, 
It's that he not only grants permission to Joseph's family to settle in the best part of the land of Egypt, which is Goshen, but he also grants that those who are able among them be put in charge to oversee the royal flocks. Or in other words, some of them have now the opportunity to become royal shepherds. I mean, that's a great privilege and not something that just any passerby in Egypt would get. This is God using a pagan king like Pharaoh to take care of Jacob and his family. You know, I love that about God. God can care for his people through so many different avenues. You know, sometimes we think if only such and such a person is in political power, for example, only then uh, that kind of person only can do good for the people of God. And then we can be tempted to be anxious when those in political power over us are those who reject God and His standards, thinking, oh, what's going to happen to us and what's going to happen to the next generation and the generation after that? But God has and continues to use people because he is so powerful that he can use even the most God-hating person to care for his people. The same God who took care of Joseph's family as he moved the heart of Pharaoh is the same God who takes care of you and me even today as his children. Now, after Pharaoh grants permission to stay in Goshen and this amazing privilege of being, for some of them, being royal shepherds, Joseph now brings his father Jacob to Pharaoh. Why? Because Jacob is the patriarch. He's the, the head of the family of this, you know, 70 sons. And so he has now come to meet Pharaoh. Look at verse 7. Then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood before, before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Just look down to verse 10 as well. Again it says, And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. You know, in appreciation for all that Pharaoh has done, twice in verse 7 and verse 10, it says that Jacob blessed Pharaoh. You know, what is so striking about this is, the Bible says, even in Hebrews 7, 7, that it is the inferior that is blessed by the superior. From a worldly perspective, we would expect Pharaoh, powerful and wealthy king of the greatest nation at the time, to bless Jacob. Jacob, this old, frail, weak, nomadic herdsman. But the exact opposite happens. Jacob blesses Pharaoh. Why? Because spiritually speaking, Jacob, as the seed of Abraham, is the bearer of the Abrahamic blessing. And therefore, it is right that Jacob blesses Pharaoh. 
Jacob believes in God's promise to Abraham where God said, I will bless those who bless you and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so it is part of that Abrahamic promise that Jacob is now invoking as he blesses Pharaoh to be an agent of blessing to those who bless the descendants of Abraham. Now, seeing Jacob was an old man, now I don't know if he had lots of wrinkles or not, but he was certainly old and frail. And remember, he he would be walking with that limp back from when he wrestled with the angel of God. And old age during this time was seen as a sign of divine favor. And so it would have made this blessing more significant and more profound as Pharaoh is seeing this old man blessing him. And so Pharaoh acknowledges this blessing by asking Jacob his age. Look at verse 8 and 9. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. So Jacob says he's 130 years old. And as we will see later on in the text, he will live another 17 more years. That's a pretty long time to live. 130 plus another 17, 147 years. But notice what Jacob says. He also says his years on earth have been a sojourn and they have been few. Jacob is saying, see, I've had no permanent place to live on this earth. I've just been moving from one place to another. He's saying my life on this earth has been like a foreigner just passing through. And yet, compared to his father, grandfather Abraham, who lived 175 years, and his father Isaac, who lived 180 years, his years still are few compared to their longer lives. And then he also adds this, and they have been evil in the sense that they have been difficult and painful. You know, Jacob, we know, you know, we've, seen so much of Jacob's life, right? Jacob is a man of faith. He trusts in the Lord God. And the Lord has changed so much of his circumstances. And yet, even at this point, there is a sense of pessimism still there as he thinks of his life. My years have been few and evil or difficult and painful. But I would say, even in a sense, you can't blame Jacob for feeling this way because he was right. In one sense, his life was hard and painful. You know, some of the difficulties were brought about by Jacob's own actions and other difficulties were brought about by others. I just think of his life for a moment. You know, right from in the womb, His brother and him were fighting, right from in the womb. Then he deceives his brother. His brother Esau wants to kill him. 
Then he runs away from home and the promised land. Then for 20 years, he serves his father-in-law Laban, who is a cheat and a scoundrel. And even when he returned to the land, his daughter Dinah was raped. His two sons massacred a whole town as a result. His favorite wife, Rachel, died. His favorite son, Joseph, was thought to be dead for 20 plus years. So yeah, it was a painful and difficult life for Jacob. Some because of his own doing, because of his own deception and favoritism and uh, foolishness, and others because of others doing to him. See, knowing the Lord God for Jacob did not mean that he would have an easy and cushy life. And yet the ironic thing is, it is this flawed, frail man who has had a miserable life is the very same man who blesses Pharaoh. Why? Because he knows Yahweh. He knows the God of heaven and earth. And the promises of God, he knows, belong to him. Jacob, who had a miserable life, is able to bless Pharaoh because even though from a worldly perspective, Jacob has nothing. Spiritually speaking, Jacob has everything, the Lord God and his promises. You know, I wonder if even in this day and age, in this New Testament age, as Christians, if there are some, if not many, who can relate to Jacob when he says, my life has been hard and painful. You know, where life just hasn't turned out as you planned. Maybe you thought by now you would be so much more accomplished in life, but it just hasn't happened. Maybe you thought you'd be married and have kids and have a house and settle down by now, but life just somehow didn't turn out that way. Maybe family life has been more challenging than you had imagined. Maybe you've been going through one hardship after another. Maybe the more you try to live your life for Jesus, the more you are rejected and life is becoming more difficult. But let me remind you, brother or sister, while following Christ does not mean that life will be easy and pain-free, it does mean that you have something far more valuable than any successful, trouble-free person of this world. You have every spiritual blessing in Christ. You have the very life of Christ flowing in you. Your life is eternally bound to Christ. A life that will continue beyond this sin-cursed world into glory. You know, according to worldly standards, brother, sister in Christ, you may seem as weak and useless and have nothing to offer. 
But as a Christian, you have the greatest blessing to offer the world. The treasure of the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. The power of God unto salvation for all who will believe. And there is nothing that the world can offer that is greater than that. So frail and weak Isaac blesses the powerful and wealthy Pharaoh, fulfilling his role as a descendant of Abraham. Now, I don't think at this point Pharaoh became a believer, but at the very least, he receives that blessing from Jacob. Now, verse 11 and 12, it says, Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers, and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. So Joseph now settles his family in the best land, that is the land of Goshen. And each family unit is provided for according to the number of their children. You know, you can't help but think of the grace of God extended to this family. I mean, just, we briefly looked at Jacob, but when you think overall at Jacob and his sons, they were all scoundrels. And in a severe famine like this, they don't deserve to be set up like this so that they can not just survive, but even thrive and prosper. But why is it that this has happened? Because of God's undeserving grace. Because of his undeserving grace, God raised up their brother Joseph and through Joseph reconciled his family to himself. And furthermore, because of Joseph, they have been given the best of the land and they have been taken care of. Now you might be sitting here and thinking, well, that's well and good for Jacob and his family, Benoit. But my life is still so hard. Let me tell you, brother, sister, even the hardest life is still so far away from what we actually deserve, isn't it? And besides, this short life in this sin-cursed world, it's just a vapor where we're just passing through. And then we'll enter into the life that is to come, which is for the rest of eternity. And as Apostle Paul says, the glories of that life to come is nothing compared to the sufferings that we experience in this sin-cursed world. If you are a Christian... I want to tell you this this morning. God has not and will not treat us as our sins deserve. Instead, he treats us with abounding grace. Why? Not because we deserve it, but because of our greater Joseph, Jesus Christ. So now, from Joseph's family coming before Pharaoh and then settling in the land of Goshen, 
we move now to Joseph's administration in Egypt, verses 13 through 31. Verse 13. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. Now here's a reminder that the famine is severe and it's still ongoing. And there's particular mention of the land of Canaan and the land of Egypt to remind us the plight that Egypt would be in and Jacob and his family would be in if God were not working through Joseph. It's all languishing because of the severe famine. Now we've seen what's happened to Jacob and his family, but what's going to happen to the rest of the people in Egypt during the severe famine? Well, verse 14 and 15. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph bought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, give us food. Why should we die before your eyes, for our money is gone? Now remember, Joseph had wisely created store, stores of grain during the years of plenty. And so people continued to buy grain from Joseph, and Joseph brought all that money into Pharaoh's treasury. And eventually the people's money run out, and Joseph now comes up with another plan. Verse 16 and 17. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. I want you to think about this for a moment. If there was no food or sufficient food for the people, then it would also mean that there was no food for the animals either. All the livestock would have died if Joseph did not intervene. And so Pharaoh gets all the livestock from the people by Joseph's administration, but the people continue to get food. It's a win-win for everyone. Joseph is wisely caring for the people, but also doing what is good for the administration of Pharaoh. And yet, because of the severity of the famine, within a year, the people's livestock are all gone, and now the people themselves come up with a plan. Let's look from verses 18 through to 24. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There's nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. 
So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields, because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them, and therefore they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as the seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. So money is gone, livestock is gone. Now the people give all their lands to Pharaoh. And they themselves become slaves in exchange for regular food and seed to sow when the times would be right in the land. So that eventually when the famine is over, they'd be able to sow these seeds and cultivate the land and yield crops. So at this point they have food, and then food and income for later with the seeds that are given to them. Now at this point, we might be thinking, but they become slaves. Isn't that a bad thing? You know, sometimes with our modern thinking of slavery, you know, when we think of people becoming slaves, we're thinking people in chains being whipped, you know, forced against their will, just treated as property, at the whim of their master. But that's not what's going on here. In the ancient world, there's no concept of welfare. You know, you don't trade, you don't work, then you don't get anything. There's no free dole. There's no unemployment benefits. You are expected to work in some form or the other. And so the... What you see here is that the people themselves willingly offer themselves to be slaves in exchange for food and seed. To be a slave at this time meant that they would be provided for. And they were not treated harshly or cruelly. Look at how the people respond in verse 25. And they said, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth, and the land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. So during this famine, and because of how great Joseph is, it's a wonderful thing to be a slave like this, because they're treated well. To not be a slave meant death for them. They wouldn't be able to survive. When you're a slave under the rule of Joseph, it meant that you are provided for and you could support your family and there's promise of future. And then Joseph even says, once the famine is over, that they they should plant the seed and the harvest and they are to give 20% of their income to Pharaoh as tax. While they could keep 80% of it. Now just, just think about this whole situation, this, you know, Joseph's administration during this time. If Joseph 
hadn't acted wisely. And he simply gave free grain. Oh, okay, you know, you, you don't have grain? Free grain for everyone. Here you go, here you go, here you go. The whole nation very soon would have collapsed. And there would be nothing, nothing there to sustain the nation moving forward. There's nothing coming into the government. The people have nothing. And so the way Joseph has acted in a way that is good for the people and that would sustain the nation long term. Okay, so that's great. You know, Joseph's wise administrative skills. So what are we to make from this section? You know, best government policies in times of crisis? Is that what this is about? I don't think so. I don't think that's the point of the passage. It's simply a description of what happened during the severe famine in Egypt and Joseph's key role in it. Then what is the point of this section? The point is this, uh, as one theologian very clearly put it, that salvation and security and blessing is only found in the seed of Abraham and not in the power of Egypt. Let me say that again. Salvation and security and blessing is found only in the seed of Abraham and not in the power of Egypt. Egypt is the mighty, powerful nation at this time. Yet it is so dependent on Joseph to make it just survive. And there's such a contrast between Egypt and the people of Israel as you just look at verse 27 where it says, and thus Israel, so Egypt is just languishing and they sort of survive. And look at the people of Israel, thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and they were fruitful and multiplied greatly. So mighty Egypt is languishing, but saved through the seed of Abraham. And the people of Israel, on the other hand, are thriving again through the agency of the seed of Abraham, Joseph himself. You know, this would be an important lesson that the people of Israel needed to remember. Remember the Israelites as they would wander through the wilderness. As they, you know, finally would be freed from Egypt and they would wander through the wilderness. Often they would be tempted saying, oh, you know, things were better back in Egypt. Here in the wilderness, I'm going to die. Egypt is where I can be saved and life will be great. This account would remind them, no, Egypt is not great and cannot save you. It is Joseph who saved Egypt from death. And our forefathers prospered by God's hand through Joseph in Egypt while Egypt was floundering.
it would be an important lesson not just to the people of Israel, but even to us. And it is this, that no worldly power, no political system, no government will ultimately be able to protect you and save you and keep you. It is only through the offspring of Abraham, one better than Joseph, the Lord Jesus Christ, that the security and blessing comes. And so this would have been a reminder to the people of Israel, don't go back to Egypt. Egypt has nothing to offer. What you want to do is put your hope in the seed of Abraham. And ultimately that seed is Jesus Christ who will, and it's a precursor to what he will fulfill that is multiplying the descendants of Abraham to include even people like us and save the nations. Now verse 28 it says, And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. And so the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. You know, I love the grace of God here. For 17 years, Jacob took care of his beloved son, Joseph, till he was taken from him for so many years. Now Jacob comes to Egypt, and when Pharaoh asks him, he's 130 years. And he's given another 17 years by the Lord, where he's provided for and taken care of by his beloved son, Joseph. What a marvelous grace from God. The last few verses. And when the time drew near that Israel might die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry, carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. And he answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. So Joseph, pardon me, Jacob is very close to his death. And what Jacob says to Joseph is, do not bury me in Egypt. Yes, things are great here. You know, we've been provided for and we've prospered and, you know, great things happening here in Egypt. But don't bury me here in Egypt. Take me back to Canaan. Take me back to the cave of Machpelah where my fathers are buried. Swear to me. He was so intent that he would be buried in the promised land that he gets Joseph to swear to him. Why? We've seen this before. 
because Canaan was the land of promise to the people of Israel. Jacob wasn't looking to Egypt where he said, you know, things are nice here, we'll just stay here and it'll all be fine. And mind you, the Egyptians knew how to make tombs. I mean, the pyramids, have you thought of the pyramids? And all the embalming and the mummification and all those different things that they would do. And yet here's Jacob saying, no, I don't want any of that. Take me back to the cave at Machpelah in the promised land. Here's Jacob at the end of his life, walking by faith and not by sight. You know, God had promised him, not only will you become a great nation here, but I will bring you back to the land. And Jacob, by faith, is holding on to that promise. And he sees that this prosperous, mighty nation of Egypt has nothing to offer him. But God has everything to offer him and he's trusting in the promises of God which will be with him even beyond the grave. I think you can very clearly see the application even for us, right? I mean, it's easy for us to get so wrapped up in this world, right? Godless nation or the godless world, everything is prosperous getting wrapped up in what the world loves, getting wrapped up in what the world hopes for, money and success and who will be in political power and being anxious about it. Oh, no, 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 we need to remind ourselves we are but sojourners on this earth. Our time here is short. Yes, we may have some painful days as well. But it's a short sojourn on this earth. This world is not our home. Our permanent home is still coming when Christ will return and set up his kingdom. So what are we to do? Not fix our eyes and our hope in this world or anything that this world has to offer, but to fix our eyes on the greater Joseph who will make all things right and keep us in his beautiful kingdom and we will be with him for all of eternity let me just read just as i close what the exhortation of peter in first peter 1 and verse 13 first peter 1 and 13 peter exhorts us saying therefore preparing your minds for actions for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the faith that you give us, for life that you give us in and through Christ, and through the empowering work of your Holy Spirit. And we thank you for the reminders again today, even as we are tempted to believe the lies and the glamour and the pleasures and the, and the success of this world and to be tempted to go the way of the world. Thank you for reminding us not to put our trust in 
and our hope in this world and anything that this world has to offer. But to put our hope in our greater Joseph, the ultimate seed of Abraham, through whom we have every blessing, through whom we have life eternal, through whom we have the joy of being his subjects under his rule for all of eternity. Lord, help us as we live in this world to remind us that this life on earth is temporary, few and hard at times, but help us to live with our eyes solely focused on our Christ, our coming King and Lord and Savior. We thank you for this hope. Please strengthen us even this day and this coming week with this truth. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.